get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, goodbye, 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 hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul or of the time. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode, and remember, this is wide screen podcasting. This is wide screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, so glad to see you here, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Yes, everyone. We are indeed back for part two of our look at McCartney's 1997 album, Flaming Pie. We are continuing on with our first three-part album review, and I promise you that this is going to be more than worth it, as there's frankly a ridiculous level of detail in this episode, and I know you're all going to enjoy it. Last week, we made our way through all things Paul and Linda, you know, basically what they were doing between Off the Ground and this release, and... Now that we're caught up proper with their personal lives, it's time for us to finally begin discussing the album proper. In this episode, we're going to cover everything about the production of the album, everyone who was involved, its release, its promotion, its reception. Yeah, in short, this is the actual Flaming Pie episode of the Flaming Pie series. This is all Flaming Pie all of the time. And there really isn't much more to say than that. Though I do have one slight preface for this episode, and that is I did indeed record this one while suffering from a little case of the COVID-19. It did knock me about quite badly, and so if there's a bit of a scratchy throat or any weird vocal things, I hope you could find it in your hearts to forgive me. But before we can get into any flaming pie stuff, we must first press on with the matter of the... Housekeeping! Starting off, what do we have in terms of the news for today? First of all, McCartney showed his support for Ukraine on social media, doing a retweet or two here and there, and sending out his love and support for the Ukrainians suffering in the conflict overseas. Same here from everyone at Paul or Nothing. Our hearts go out to you. And we hope that the pipes of peace will soon be playing over the people of Ukraine. Moving on to more upbeat news, the... Women and Wives Record Store Day album cover and B-side have finally been revealed. There's a nice sunlit image of a woman and or wife on the front cover. And the B-side, shock horror, just as I predicted, is the St. Vincent cover of Women and Wives. Also, it's been named as the official song of the year for Record Store Day. No idea why. We've also got a new Paul McCartney book on the horizon, which is McCartney Legacy by Alan Cozen... And Adrian Sinclair, of course you will remember Alan Cozin from the episode we did on the Up Close performance. I really enjoyed that episode, hopefully we'll be getting him back on for some more chat about this upcoming book, and maybe even a bit of Macket in your attic once I get that back up off the ground. Here's a little summary of the book from their website. Set against the backdrop of the Beatles splintering over business and creative issues, McCartney Legacy 1 covers a period in which Paul McCartney recreated himself both as a man and as a musician. This is an in-depth and revealing exploration of his creative life beyond the Beatles, featuring hundreds of interviews with fellow musicians, tour managers, recording engineers, producers, filmmakers and more. 
folks, this just seems to be the book that is going to be one of the official tomes of Port. And I think I cannot wait to get my grubby little fingers on this and maybe even talk with Alan and Adrian about it a little as well. Finally, Paul has sold his house, or at least one of them. The location that he bought with uh, Nancy Cheval back in 2015, which is located on Fifth Avenue's Museum Mile and Overlook Central Park, cost them reportedly about $15.5 million, uh, seven years ago, and they're just selling it for $8.5 million now. I guess Paul doesn't need the money. Maybe the value's dropped, who knows, but hey, Paul's sold his house. And that is it for the news this week. Nothing too major in the world of Paul McCartney. Again, heart, soul and love and back again goes out to the people of Ukraine. But now we're going to press on to the plugs of the show. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I love reading out any and all correspondence you send out here to the show. I always enjoy that. For day-to-day updates, follow us on our Twitter page, which is at McCartneyPod. For bonus written content, check out the sister blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by in Paul and All Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is where you can find nearly 30 episodes of Macca in Your Attic, one of our sideshows where me and a guest go through their attic, as it were, and look at and discuss McCartney memorabilia. Of course, if you want to help out the show right now in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please consider leaving us a review of some sort, preferably a positive one, but I'm I'm not going to make it, whether it's a thumbs up, some stars, a comment, a like, a share, a retweet, whatever you can do to help spread the poor or nothing word, the word, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much, folks. And finally, of course... If you want to help out the show directly, if you enjoy what I do here at Paul, and I think if you want to see it continue and expand and grow, maybe you just want to chip in a few dollars every month to help keep the lights running, or maybe you just want to say thank you, consider joining our Patreon family. Of course, Patreon is the platform by which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as moi. It's not just a GoFundMe, though. You do get certain rewards. You get early access to episodes of Paul or Nothing by two days. You get instant access to all episodes of Macca in your attic. You get instant access to any interviews I do that are recorded on Zoom. So, for example, the interview I've done with Dr. Duncan Driver, which is the part three of this series, this has now been up on the Patreon for two weeks now at the time of recording, so you would have been able to have access to that episode much sooner than everyone else. You get access to lost and unreleased episodes of Paul or Nothing that are never going to go out, uh, the scripts that I put out for the show, as well as my weekly vlog series where I just do a little bit of bonus content for the fans, you know, the ones who put the money where the mouth is. Um, Didn't do one last week, had covid Please forgive me, going to be recording another one tomorrow before work. Of course, I just want to take a quick moment before we start the episode proper to thank my Patreon family, including Jack, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twowey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Robert Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Biddington, Mr. B, Teresa Breda, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Sharon McCoy, Katrina S, Sam Hode, Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Folks, If you ever keep a track of those names, you may notice that a few of the regular ones have now gone. That's a massive shame, you know, not just financially, but it's just nice to know that you've got people directly supporting you. If you think other people are going to do the whole Patreon thing, uh, you know, if you think that other people are going to be doing it, don't be that person. (laughs) Please consider joining. Um, 
it's definitely worth it. Oh, but of course I'd say that. Anyway, now that all of that housekeeping is out of the way, let's crack on with Flaming Pie Part 2. And we're going to talk about why this album came out first. Of course, once Off the Ground was released and the New World Tour came to an end, Paul turned to his bandmates and told them that he was going to leave to be a Beatle again for a while, and which we discussed in the last episode in great detail. And this led to the Beatles' anthology. But what made him decide to do Flaming Pie in 97? You know, he'd probably presumably done most of the work by 95, so why didn't this come out in 96? I mean, why didn't this come out during the hype of the anthology album? Maybe that would have given this album a little bit more of a boost, maybe helped get it to number one. Was this a case of just having the time to do it, or was there something more special about this post-anthology era? Well, rather interestingly, just as he was gearing up to do the Beatles anthology, someone at EMI told Paul that they didn't need an album from him for a good couple of years. At first, Paul was cross and thought that this was a typical record company move, but then he realised they were right. This allowed him to concentrate his efforts on the anthology and meant that, unlike the McCartney album and Let It Be, he wouldn't be creating a conflict of interest. You know, he wouldn't be making people choose maybe between either getting the anthology album or the new McCartney album. But this is actually detailed here in an article titled McCartney Let Loose on Capital's Flaming Pie Set from April of 97. It reads, McCartney said that he was almost insulted at first before then realising that, quote, it would be silly to go against yourself in the form of the Beatles. So I fell in with the idea and thought, great, I don't even have to think about an album. And it was probably the right move in hindsight. It would be, you know, unseemly, perhaps, to release a solo album in the midst of all that collective creativity and activity. And, you know, besides, neither George nor Ringo released any material during that period either. Though, whilst he was officially having time off, this didn't mean that he was going to stop writing songs and stocking his back pocket. Paul is always wanting to make music and always is making music, and so... Without the pressure of deadlines, he wrote a song here, a song there, mostly on holiday, and soon enough, he had a sizable collection of them, including some songs recorded around the the off-the-ground era. Just as Paul explains to Bob Spitz here in a New York Times article from the 20th of May, 97, he said, I was told by the record company that they wouldn't need me to put anything out for the next couple of years, and I thought, oh ye of little faith, but the album just came, and it kind of just flowered from there. So yeah, as I will detail later, there was no actual songwriting period for Flaming Pie. There was no, right, I'm going to start Flaming Pie kind of mindset. And rather like McCartney 2 and McCartney 3, the album more or less came about by accident. And it does, you know, go with the theory, go along with the theory that some of the best McCartney albums are the ones that he doesn't plan to do. Now, I don't think it's too radical to say that an album likely would have followed on from Off the Ground, likely with the same band, but the anthology and that separation, that distance from his old self, really did give him a chance to grow and evolve and, you know, in George's language, be reborn, I suppose. You know, when people talk about Flaming Pie being a return to form, they're also talking about a certain sense of energy and delight and youthfulness not just in the sense that the music's good which it is 
Also, in addition to helping him reconnect with his Beatles past, the anthology had reminded Paul of the high standards that the Beatles set in the recording process. And, you know, showing that he was bloody talented, it did remind him of how brilliant he was, and it excited him and gave him an urge to make new music. The other key element of the Flaming Pie recording sessions is that the whole thing had to be fun. This is because A, he didn't need to make an album, either contractually or financially, and B, because he had experienced having so much fun you know, making the anthology, and he saw how much fun he used to have making the Beatles albums, that having fun was something that he wanted to focus on. You know, it was at the height of his hierarchy of needs for this album. So whatever album Paul was going to make next, he was going to do it with the attitude that, you know, he was going to have fun. And if so, hopefully the listeners would too. When speaking with Guitar World magazine in 97, Paul said... Watching the anthology also reminded me of the time that we didn't take to make an album and the fun we had when we did one. The Beatles were not a serious group, so I wanted to try and get back into some of that, to have some fun and not sweat it. That's been the spirit of making this album. You've got to have a laugh because it's just an album. So I just called up a bunch of friends and family and we just got on and did it. Of course, when the press release for Fleming Pie was released, Paul did decide to make this connection with the anthology very obvious indeed. His first studio recording in four years. Flaming Pie marks the first album released by a Beatle since the Beatles anthology, which scored three consecutive number one recordings and a number one long-form video. McCartney says he was inspired in the making of Flaming Pie by the anthology, which reminded him of the songwriting standards and the fun of the Beatles. And there we are, folks. I think I quite roundly covered there why Flaming Pie came out in the year that it did, the year of our Lord, 1997. And now that we have spoken about why this album came out and when, it is now time for us to discuss a familiar face from the last episode, actually. We're now going to talk about this album's producer, one of the producers. And of course, that naturally brings us on to the subject of one Mr. Jeff Lynne. is a singer-songwriter, guitarist and producer who is most widely known as the founder of the hugely successful band ELO, aka Electric Light Orchestra, or formerly known as The Electric Light Orchestra. Of course, ELO were a very popular rock band which was largely known for a focus on orchestral arrangements rather than guitar sounds and for taking rock music in the direction to, and I quote, pick up where the Beatles left off most formally like, you know, Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. The band were formed in 1970 in my hometown of Birmingham here in the UK, and after the departure of co-frontman Roy Wood in 72, ELO basically became a Jeff Lynne show, with the band going on to achieve several number one albums here in the UK, about five of them reaching top ten in the US, and Whilst, you know, they were mostly well-known for songs like Mr. Blue Sky and Don't Bring Me Down, their most successful track to date is actually Xanadu with Olivia Newton-John for the soundtrack album of the same name. 
Didn't know that going in. Anyway, starting out with producing for the two bands he was in, uh, Idle Race and The Move, the latter of which he would do as a, uh, a side-by-side side project with ELO. Lynn was not only the frontman for ELO, but also their de facto producer and would produce basically everything he ever did for the band. Then in the 80s, he started branching out and began to just straight up produce for other artists such as Del Shannon, Brian Adams, Dave Edmonds, Joe Cocker, the Tandy Morgan Band, Brian Wilson, Randy Newman, Tom Petty, fuck yeah, and George Harrison. The latter was for the album Cloud Nine, which was George Harrison's final solo album to be released whilst he was still alive, which included the massively successful Got My Mind Set On You, which was a number two hit and overall fifth highest selling song here in the UK in 87, and was a number one smash hit and overall third highest selling song in the US in 88. That very same year, Lynn would also become a founding member of the Travelling Wilburys, sometimes just known as the Wilburys, the supergroup consisting of Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Jeff Lynne, Roy Orbison and Tom Petty. Continuing on into the 90s, Lynn would produce further for Tom Petty, quite a lot actually, and even expanded to producing for another Wilbury in the form of Roy Orbison. He also produced two songs for Ringo Starr's 1992 album, Time Takes Time, as well as doing a bit of work for Hank Marvin, Juliana Ray, and Tom Jones. However, as we mentioned in the last episode, the most significant production job he worked on during this period was on the Beatles slash Threetles singles, Free as a Bird, and Real Love. Also, for some reason, I didn't really go into Real Love on the last one. But yeah, Jeff Lynne produced that song as well. And he went to number four here in the UK and number 11 in the US, as well as being a top 10 hit all over Europe. Again, as I went into, this is where Paul and Jeff Lynne first worked together. And despite Lynne essentially being, quote-unquote, George's man in the studio, they seemingly got along well enough for Paul to recruit him for Flaming Pie once the album had begun in earnest. For anyone who has listened to ELO or any of his work with other artists or even Flaming Pie, you will know that Lynn's production style is very bright, very polished and very clean. He's very clean. He has a wonderful blend of pop and rock sensibilities and he certainly has a knack for getting a good take out of an artist. I know some people out there might find it a bit basic or a bit unambitious, but I reckon the best way to put it is unflashy. Rather like Ringo, he does his production in service of the artist, and his lack of ego means he's very workmanlike and he doesn't try and make it sound like a Jeff Lynne production or do anything drastically outside of the artist's regular sound. Now, when asked about why he wanted to continue working with Lynn in the notes for the Flaming Pie Archives box set, Paul said the following. Just listening to the records he'd done, I knew he could make good records, and I know he's very good at harmonies. He's very good at being precise with his production. You don't get too many rough edges. It's his style. He's a good lad, and he's a fun guy who comes from our school of thought. You know, we'd be talking about reading and writing music and the phenomenal success of the Beatles. And none of us could read or write or note music. And Jeff quite rightly said, Yeah, we just make it all up, don't we? Yeah, exactly. That's our skill. We make it up. That kind of person is just good to work with. I mean, we have a similar non-training. Conversely, when Lynn was asked about how he ended up working on this album, his answer was surprisingly simple and delightfully adorable. He said, 
It started with a call from Paul asking if I'd like to work with him on his new album. Well, Paul McCartney, yes please, I'd love it. So, once the album had been released and the sessions were all over, Paul did a little interview with Q Magazine, and, of course, the topic of Jeff Lynne came up. Paul was asked, So, how was working with Jeff Lynne? Pretty much on the same basis I'd work with Steve. He'd play a guitar riff, I'd play bass, and then he'd sing harmony with me. It's good having someone like that who's a guitarist-singer, when you think about it, because it's John, really. Does Jeff not feel self-conscious about being a surrogate John Lennon? I think he might have, but he got over it because during the anthology, we realised that that's what he was. He was being the fourth Beatle there. Now, folks, a lot of people have been given the moniker of the fifth Beatle, but I don't think I've ever heard of anyone being called the fourth Beatle before. That's quite the accolade indeed. And it's clear that McCartney really does have a certain bond with Lynn. And even though they never work together again, which is a real shame, really, you know that there is a real love there. Eh? In 2015, McCartney posted a video message to celebrate the ELO Mastermind star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He said, We love you so much, Jet Flynn. And in a 2020 interview with the Sun newspaper, Jeff Lynn said, It's funny, Paul's the only one that ever thought of that name. Now, before I do move on, folks, I do have to point something out. Despite being known as the quote-unquote producer of this album, that isn't entirely the case, as the fragmented recording sessions for this album meant that Jeff is only officially listed as the producer on the following tracks. The songs we were singing, The World Tonight, Flaming Pie... Heaven on a Sunday, Souvenir, Little Willow, Really Love You, and Beautiful Night. Now, George Martin produced Calico Skies and Great Day, as well as doing the orchestral overdubs for Some Days and Beautiful Night. And Paul self-produced If You Wanna, Some Days, Young Boy, and Used to Be Bad. Right. Now that we have discussed the men behind the console, it is time to discuss a couple of players in front of it. Let us now discuss the band, though since this is mostly just a Paul McCartney one-man band kind of album, with Jeff Lynne doing a lot of the uh, instrumentals and guitars and stuff, this is going to thankfully be a rather brief segment indeed. And whilst this album is off-sighted as the Jeff Lynne one, in the sense that he's the main collaborative force on the album, it doesn't mean that he's the only one of note, as there is someone else on this album who does leave their own mark, with it being a very non-Jeff Lynnian flair, might I add. These are the songs to feature one Steve Miller. Of course, Steve Miller is an American guitarist, singer and songwriter, known as the leader of the Steve Miller Band. Now, despite Miller being a pretty prominent name in classic rock, the only real exposure I've had to him prior to this episode was his number one hit song, The Joker, from the number one 1973 album of the same name. And the only reason I had heard that song a few years ago was because I was looking for the soundtrack to the movie Joker. A uh, bit embarrassing there. I mean... <laughs> Not only till very recently, folks, did I actually know that the act is called The Steve Miller Band, and not just some bloke called Steve Miller Band. And this isn't as crazy as it sounds, as two key figures in the Labour Party here in the UK a few years ago were Ed and David Miller Band, spelt M-I-L-L-A rather than M-I-L-L-E-R, but, you know, easy enough mistake, I think. 
Now, the most famous Steve Miller, Paul McCartney story that exists concerns the 1969 album by the Steve Miller band, Brave New World. And it's an album that not only contains a kind of sampled guitar riff snatched from Lady Madonna, but it also features a cameo from Paul McCartney while he was still in the Beatles. Basically, the album's final track, My Dark Hour, was recorded in a late-night session on May 9th, 1969, after a big bust-up between McCartney and the other fabs over the signing of a contract appointing Alan Klein as their manager. Lennon, Harrison and Starr had all walked out, whilst McCartney remained at Olympic Studios. Paul, being Paul, likely wandered into another recording room, and Miller, being the only member of the band present at the session, invited him in. The fittingly titled My Dark Hour emerged from Miller and McCartney jamming it out and letting off some steam. For this track, Paul was credited as Paul Raymond, a pseudonym that should be more than familiar to any fan of Ram, aka Raymond equals Ramon. And you know what, folks? Let's take a quick listen to this track. <laughs> that this night left an impression on Paul, as seen here in this interview from Club Sandwich number 82, when he recalls why he wanted to work with Steve again in the first place. He said, I hadn't seen Steve Miller since one night at Olympic Studios in 1969, when there was an unfortunate business meeting and a Beatles session broke down. So that reminded me of Steve. I called him up and we got our friendship going again. I told him that I had a song and reckoned we could do it together, and he invited me out to his studio in Idaho. We had a great time there just hanging out and recording. Working with him again was like falling back into a pleasant old habit. Steve's tough to produce because he's a great perfectionist, but I'll just hold him up to whack up the guitar. I love his guitar playing. So, just like with Jeff Lynne, Paul has chosen to work with Miller as not only is he good at what he does, but he can also just hang out with him and have fun when he does. Again, this is really about the idea of the album being one where Paul can enjoy himself. You know, that idea is very present in these kind of moves. And if anything, it really reminds me of Paul's criteria for deciding which artists he was going to be including in Wings back in the early 70s. Very similar kind of mindset. When Steve was asked himself about how he got involved in the project, he said, Linda called up one day from Bermuda or someplace and said, what are you doing? I said, just sitting here reading a book. How have you been? I haven't really talked to you for a while. She said, Paul's working on this album and we would really like you to sing harmony on it. I said, come on over, I've got a studio. They showed up and spent a couple of weeks here. Then I flew over to his studio for 10 days and played some guitar. When we played together in 1969, we really did some interesting work. I don't really think Paul had played with very many people. I don't think he had a very broad range of people he felt comfortable working with. And 
we were really comfortable. We were just kicking out the jams. He was playing drums, I was playing guitar. That's the way we start our stuff. On his stuff, we had some basic tracks and wanted harmony. And also, here is a quote from Steve Miller on the Flaming Pie Radio special describing how that worked with Paul went. Generally, you know, when I'm working with Paul, everything is one take and it's like, be great instantly and here we go and there we were. You know, that's the thing I really enjoy. I really feel inspirational from working in this way because it sort of got me out of the, you know, sitting in the studio and thinking about working and thinking and working. When Paul showed up with his songs, he knew exactly how those songs went, pretty much what he wanted me to play, and he had even written the backing vocals for me. You know, he showed me what he wanted me to do on the tunes that he had all figured out. Of course, I'll be going into this in greater detail in the next episode, but the Steve Miller songs are basically the more basic, uh, more jam-focused, more guitar-focused songs on the album. For good or bad, they do moderately stand out from the rest of the album, but they are still easily some of the more fun, loose and carefree tracks on the entire thing. And it, it all still sounds poor, of course it does. If you've been feeling a little bogged down, though, in the precision and particularness of Paul's music, you know, in the way that that's been going lately, then you're going to love his work with Miller, as, again, he just kicks back and has fun with it. Miller's guitar style is also a highlight of the album, and his bold style, whilst unique, still does fit in with the atmosphere and the tone of the album effortlessly. And it's a shame that they never collaborated again, really. And then we come to another major player on this record, someone who goes back many, many years with our lad Paul, and together they helped each other take over the world. This person is quite easily one of the most famous drummers to ever have lived, and he has certainly put the beat in the Mersey beat. He is a name that will surely go down in the... Uh, look, it's Ringo, okay? It's, it's, it's Ringo Starr, it's Richard Starkey. And... Look, folks, this episode is long enough already, and I really don't care for going over Ringo's solo work or his personal life. So if you do want to go find out more, go and check out the Ringo Rama podcast or something like that. You know, that's a great little show, because I really can't be asked to tell you who the fuck Ringo Starr is. You know, you know what you know he's been doing. He broke with the Beatles. He's done solo records. He, he did the Ringo album, which every Beatles podcast has covered to death already. Uh, he did Give My Good Regards to Broad Street with Paul in the mid-80s and haven't done anything since. Though, I must point out that, according to McCartney in a recent interview with The Sun newspaper, Paul did actually credit Jeff Lynne with bringing Ringo into the studio. I'd been saying to Ringo for years that it'd be great to do something, as we'd never really done much outside of the Beatles. One night Jeff suggested, why don't you get Ringo in? And I said, okay. It was really comfortable, and my god, I'm thinking of the memories across this ten-yard gap. Him on the drums, me on the bass. There's a lifetime going on here. It's magic. Now, for anyone thinking, hang on, Paul McCartney and The Sun, surely Paul, the Liverpool in his, would not associate with such a newspaper. And that's what I thought, and I was thinking, oh, maybe The Sun took it from an, an interview with Enemy. But actually, it's the Enemy article that cites The Sun interview, so I honestly don't know how that happened at all, folks. And if you don't know why Paul and Liverpoolians don't like the Sun newspaper, just Google it. And that brings us to the end of the Who's Who section of this episode. And it is finally time for us to move on to the recording of this album. And like I mentioned earlier, as with many Paul McCartney albums that we've covered before, Flaming Pie was not recorded in a single period studio, 
or even country. However, we've never seen anything like this, as this is certainly the most disparate of all of Paul's albums to date, obviously being owed to the fact that he was focusing on the anthology at the time. Again, like we did with Off The Ground, I'm also going to use this uh, opportunity to talk about each of the backstories of the songs individually in more detail than I would be able to in part three with my guest. So if you're after trivia over opinions, this is the place to be. Most of, if not all of the backgrounds to these songs come in some part from Mark Lewison's own album notes in Club Sandwich number 82, so a lot of the credit here goes to him, especially the parts I read verbatim. But yeah, there's a lot to cover here, so let's dive right in. Our story with this album begins all the way back in March of 1987 during the Phil Ramone sessions. Of course, these sessions spawned some of my very favourite Paul McCartney songs, and so I'm always more than happy to talk about them in detail. Basically, you know, this is the post-press-to-play era where Paul's looking for a new producer with a new sound, and so whilst promoting press-to-play in the States, he met up with Phil Ramone and recorded a couple of songs using Billy Joel's backing band. The two songs they recorded during that particular session were Loveliest Thing, which would go on to be the B-side of the Figure of Eight CD single, and the other one was an early version of Beautiful Night. Now, this was a very early, roughly plotted version of the song, and notably, it does not feature the Ringo-tastic coda at the end, but, you know, you can still see the main form ready to go. Let's also have a quick listen to that right now as well. Some boats gone out fishing Some boats high and dry Some boats on mission To the lonely Lorelei Some folks got a vision Of a castle in the sky And I'm left stranded Wondering Whilst Paul wouldn't use this version of the song, he was still pleased with his working relationship with Phil Ramone enough, who had also, you know, produced Spies Like Us the year before, and so he invited him back to his own home studio, Hog Hill Mill, in Sussex. During these more protracted sessions lasting a couple of weeks, a whole lot was recorded, though very little of it would actually end up being used on the upcoming Flowers in the Dirt album, but many of the songs would go on to become the ancillary material for Flaming Pie. You have I Love This House, which was a B-side to the Young Boy version 1 single. You've got Atlantic Ocean, which was a B-side to the Young Boy version 2 CD. Uh, both those were uber duper tracks. Then you've got Love Come Tumbling Down, which was the B-side to the Beautiful Night CD and vinyl. You have Same Love, a B-side to the Beautiful Night CD number 2. You've got Love Mix, which was the B-side to the Beautiful Night CD2, the Ubu Jubu track. You've got Squid, the B-side to the Wonderful Night CD1, Ubu Jubu track. And then you have Don't Break the Promise, which was the B-side to the World Tonight CD version 2, the Ubu Jubu track. And the rest, as they say, is history. It's a shame we still haven't got a Return to Pepperland album out of all of this, but 
fuck me, did it mean that Flaming Pie got a heaping pile of killer awesome B-sides to fill out its ranks and its B-side bonus material. Next up, and we have what I would consider to be the most important Paul McCartney recording session ever in the history of Paul McCartney, and this is because the session took place on the day I was born. Yes, Paul recorded a total of three songs at his home studio on the day of my birth, September 3rd, 1992, all of them classics and all of them on acoustic guitar. Those songs were Great Day, Calico Skies and When Winter Comes. Strangely enough, these songs were recorded during the main production phase of another album, this time being Off The Ground, and being that these were in the middle of those sessions, Paul actually had the same engineer, Bob Crawshaw, or Crowshaw, to sit in on the recordings and engineer them. This meant that Crawshaw would have credits on both Flaming Pie and McCartney 3 in the subsequent years. The reason that none of these songs appeared on Off The Ground is quite simple, and you know, now that I can look back on it, it all makes sense. Like, I can't believe I didn't even notice it at the time. You know, Off The Ground is an album for a band. It's a band album, and every track features most, if not all, of the band mates. And so it really wouldn't be appropriate for Paul to come in with one to three scene-stealing solo acoustic ditties to overshadow everyone. And so these were all put on the back burner. Again, can't believe I never noticed this, but yeah, it's it's so blatant. Once you've seen it, it's like one of those optical illusions. There are no solo McCartney tracks on Off The Ground. But let's get into some of the songs specifically, starting off with Calico Skies. This song was written whilst the McCartneys were on vacation on Long Island in August 1991, when the power went down due to the efforts of the Category 3 storm Hurricane Bob. Though ever stalwart and resourceful, they welcomed the return of the old pioneer spirit, spending candlelit evenings, cooking over a wood fire, and making and receiving visits from neighbours, as Paul details here. I wanted to write something acoustic in the vein of Blackbird, something that could be recorded without drums or an arrangement. We were in America, and Hurricane Bob had knocked out the power for about a week. That caused him full simplicity. It was primitive and fun, and I sat there with an acoustic guitar and wrote Calico Skies. Of course, this wouldn't be the first song that Paul had written during a power cut, that being power cut, and clearly a lack of electricity seems to spark some of his greatest ever works. Macca waited until the off-the-ground sessions were over and then invited George Martin to co-produce the piece, which, owing to its instrumental simplicity, was started, finished and mixed within a single session. The tape was then filed away for future use, making it the earliest recording on Flaming Pie. Then we have Great Day, which was an acoustic number that he and Linda used to perform, and I quote, sitting around the kitchen when the children were dancing, aka when they were raising their young family in the early 70s, making it akin to Bit Bop and Hey Diddle. Perhaps the forced closeness and bonding as a result of Hurricane Bob in August 91 made him think back on that more simple time of his life and pluck this one from the old memory bank. Either way, it was a very fertile period, and a year later, in the same session as Calico Skies, Paul committed Great Day to tape for the first time, not changing anything with the arrangement or lyric. When describing the song in a Club Sandwich interview, Paul remarked, Great Day is there to balance the bigness of the previous track, following on from Beautiful Night, in the way that Her Majesty came after the end on Abbey Road. I've always liked the song, but never had an opportunity to record it, so during the Calico Skies session with George Martin, 
since it had been so easy to record that one little acoustic thing, I told him that I also had this song too. The song is identical to how we used to do it 25 years ago. Moving back to the States now, and we come to the recording of Young Boy on February 22nd, 1995. This was the prelude to the true Steve Miller sessions at Paul's home studio, with Paul flipping around for a change and visiting Miller at his own home studio in Sun Valley, Idaho. He travelled there with Linda, engineer Jeff Emmerich and John Hamill. As you may have guessed, the song that they mostly worked on was Young Boy, of which they laid down the majority of the track, though Miller also recalls starting work on Broomstick, even though the official recording dates for that song are in the spring of the next year. Though it seems like you know a lot of this was just them jamming together and building a recording and working rapport between themselves. Onto the song itself now, and Young Boy was another one written by Paul under a self-imposed deadline in certain similar circumstances to Sundays, in that he took himself off to a quiet room whilst Linda was concerning herself with cookery matters. The date was the 18th of August 1994, and the location this time was the Long Island home of famous chef and culinary author Pierre Franey, for whom Linda was making a meal, along with New York Times food writer Brian Miller and a photographer. While his wife was preparing an assortment of vegetarian dishes, Paul took himself off to the den and began strumming some favoured chords, C, A minor, E minor, and popped out Young Boy, albeit at this time it was known as Poor Boy, recalling not only his earlier days, but those of his son and his son's friends who found themselves at that age where great questions are being asked of oneself. Paul re-emerged into the kitchen whilst Linda was baking a cake, and played the new song for the audience of four, telling the Times writer, I do it, songwriting, very simply at first, just to get the feeling. It's just like cooking. A simple expression can be the best. We've also got a quote here from Steve Miller, who remembers the song fondly. When speaking on the Flaming Pie radio special again, he said, Young Boy was a really neat trick for me because it was completely different than anything I would normally play and record. And I got to play lead on top, you know, some different changes and stuff and singing some different kind of harmonies. It was all really fun. For me, it's sort of like being around Mozart or something. It's a remarkable experience because Paul is so talented. He plays drums, he plays bass, he plays guitar, and he was in the Beatles, a great band. He also writes classical music, and he's just an amazingly creative person to be around. He's absolutely pleasant, very polite, very fun to work with, and we have nothing but a good time every time we get together. Moving forward to the spring, and this is on March 21st and 22nd of 1995, Paul worked on some overdubs for Young Boy, and I imagine this is where the elements like the organ and the other backing vocals were added, but that's just a guess. Then, at the end of the Young Boy sessions in Idaho, Steve Miller agreed to return the favour to Paul and go back to his own home studio. So, in May of 1995, Miller flew over to the UK and joined Paul at Hogs Hill Mill for a much more protracted series of sessions, again, kind of mirroring the uh, Phil Ramone ones, really. The first song that was officially recorded that day was the aforementioned Broomstick, which was on the 4th of May, and it would go on to be the only Miller-based track not to make the final album, and instead would be one of the B-sides for the second variation UK single of Young Boy. I did play a bit of it in the background last episode, but let's, let's highlight Broomstick.
The first song that did make the album that they worked on was recorded the next day, on the 5th of May 1995, and it's called Used To Be Bad. Now, having enjoyed cutting Young Boy with Paul, Steve Miller was insistent that he wanted to get Paul to sing some blues. As a consequence, Miller arrived at their second set of sessions with a dozen blues guitar riffs ready to go. This prompted Paul to climb behind the drum kit and the pair played away for some time, kicking around ideas, and later Miller began adding words to this jam. Once the live piece he had gelled as used to be bad came together, Paul overdubbed a bass guitar and Steve added some solos before the crucial decision was made to alternate the lead vocals. When speaking of this impromptu decision to do a blues number, Paul said, I like the blues, but I don't get to do a lot of it. So when Steve Miller said that he wanted to get me singing Texas blues, it sounded like a good offer. I got on the drums, he got on the guitar, all live, and we had fun. Then Steve came up with some words and suggested we use old blue lines like, I used to be bad, but I don't have to be bad no more. I put bass on, Steve did some solos, and we decided to sing alternate lines, singing into the same microphone. It was a jam based on Steve's riff and made up in the studio, and the vocal came in one take. Steve and I are donating our royalties on the track to Lipper. Jumping ahead a couple of days to the 11th of May 1995, we have the final song of the Miller-McCartney period, and it's called If You Wanna. This song was already a couple of years old at the point of recording, having been composed when Paul's New World Tour reached Minneapolis in May of 1993. Again, I never knew that. During a day off, after spending numerous hours inside a skyscraper hotel room that extended its head into the clouds, he became inspired by being in, still then, the artist known as Prince's Home City. Paul sat with a guitar and wrote a Driving Across America song, projecting images of Cadillacs and the coast. When speaking of this song, Paul said, We had the Durf in Minneapolis when we were on tour. Linda was going off to do something, and I stayed behind in the room and wrote a song on guitar. Recording-wise, I used the same process as the other songs that I did with Steve Miller. Me on the drums, Steve on guitar, both playing acoustic guitars. I did the vocal and produced Steve's guitar stuff. That's the kind of song you want to hear when you're driving across the desert in America. Proper easy rider country. Now, these are not the only songs the two worked with during this period, as there were two other unreleased songs that they were playing around with, ones that I haven't heard in any form, so if you have access to them, let me know. One was called Sweet Home Country Girl, and the other was called Soul Boy. Both are described as blues tracks and are clearly a product of Miller trying to get Paul to do more in that style. Though Miller did give an honestly fun little insight into why we've likely never heard these songs before, saying, We did a bunch of tunes and recorded a bunch of stuff, but, you know, just because Paul McCartney's on it doesn't mean it's a hit or it's a great song or it's fabulous or, man, this is the best piece of work I've ever heard, you've got to put this out. And so, if it doesn't come out, there's usually a reason for it. And that was taken from Beatle Fan Magazine. Moving forward, almost six months later, after the session with Steve Miller, work on Flaming Pie resumed in early November of 95. This was across November 1st to 3rd. Paul did a brief bit of solo recording and came out with the track titled Sundays. Despite sarcastic podcasters like myself who quip that Paul can easily bash out songs in his sleep with very little effort, you know, he still does like to challenge himself and impose these arbitrary deadlines with his work. Some Days was written under one strict structure. Back on the 18th of March 1994, Paul drove Linda to a house in a nearby village where she would be photographed for a cooking assignment 
and while his wife was being snapped downstairs, Paul retired to a bedroom normally used by the house owner's son, and possessing an acoustic guitar, pen and paper, he did his thing. Knowing that he only had 90 minutes, and realising the question, what did you do, would be asked to him when he returned, was all the prompting he needed to create the song, the melody, the lyric, arriving at the whole thing intact. The house owner's son made his mark on the song too, as his football slash soccer ephemera all over the wall, either consciously or subconsciously, prompted Paul to make football analogies in the lyric. In the off-quoted issue of Club Sandwich, Paul gave a surprisingly detailed insight into the writing process, detailing the following. I just started writing with my guitar and came up with some days. Some days I look at you, I look at you with eyes that shine. Some days I look into your soul. The first verse came quite well, and then the second, and the middle, and whereas at another time I might have thought, I'll leave these words there and finish them next week, I finished them there and then. John and I used to do this too, occasionally. I don't think we ever took more than three or four hours on a song. I'd go to visit him, he'd come to visit me, and we'd sit down and write. I'm not a great reader into moods. I don't naturally say that if I wrote a sad song, then I was sad that day, or if I wrote a happy song, I was happy. I wrote Obladi Oblada, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I know Desmond or Molly. I compose songs like playwrights write a play. They don't have to do it with everyone in the play, it's just a product of their imagination. I remember George Harrison saying to me once, I always have to write from something that happened to me, something in my experience. Well, that's certainly a good way to write, but I'm more fluid, more flexible than that, sometimes. Now, despite the large gap between the spring Steve Miller sessions and the making of Some Days, Paul clearly caught the recording bug, as only three days later, on the 6th of November, he invited Jeff Lynn to come and do some work. Lynn asked, how long? A month? Six weeks? But Paul replied, no, two weeks. I'll be getting bored with you after a fortnight, and you'll be bored with me. Paul wanted to avoid the trap of getting into the recording period, followed by the overdubbing period and the mixing period. Making albums could become tedious for Paul in this way, and remember folks, it's all about fun. Though it should be noted that these sessions took place nine months after the pair had worked on The Beatles' Real Love, so, you know, less than a year. Ahead of these sessions, Paul sent a tape of ten songs to Jeff Lynne, and Lynne chose three of them to work on. Once Jeff arrived on the 6th of November 95, the two began work on one of these very songs, aka the opening track for the album, titled The Songs We Were Singing. Written in Jamaica, inside the first dozen days of January 1995, the song we were singing set the pattern for all the tracks that would follow, with Paul and Jeff playing guitars as a foundation on which they built the other instrumental and vocal tracks. Their aim, successfully achieved, was to adhere to the spirit of Paul's roughly recorded demo, evoking memories of much earlier recording eras. The demo was laid into the multi-track tape as a guide for the studio recording, each element of the original being carefully listened to and then copied as close as possible, section by section, until the piece was complete. Again, this sounds a lot like Lynn going back and listening through the Free as a Bird tape. So it's, you know, again, one of his skills is listening to a demo and knowing exactly what to take from it. But I guess, you know, in this case, it was just to take it as is. Also amongst the instruments being played on this track was Bill Black's Elvis Presley stand-up bass, which we cannot not mention on this show every episode. When discussing the song, Paul made the following comment. For me, the song represents good memories of the 60s. 
of dossing around late at work, chatting, smoking, drinking wine, hanging out, jawing through the night. I think it works as an opening track. It creeps you into the album and sets it up nicely. I play Bill Black's stand-up bass on the recording. It's the wrong way around for me, being left-handed, but I have a go. I can just about play Heartbreak Hotel on it as well. Next up, and the second song that the two worked on during this period was recorded between November 13th and 17th. It was called The World Tonight. Now, The World Tonight was written by Paul whilst on a holiday in America in 1995. And, you know what, I'll just let him tell the story. He says, This one was written on acoustic guitar when I was on holiday. It started out folky. I don't go to work to write songs. They just come when the mood strikes me. And that's usually when I'm on holiday, perhaps after a sail or a swim when I'm chilling out and relaxing with the piano or guitar. My studio manager, Eddie, usually expects me to bring a couple of cassettes from each holiday. Now, despite this being what Paul is quoted as calling a very Jeff Lynne song, I actually first assumed that this track was one of the Steve Miller collabs based on that heavier riff. However, it was Jeff Lynne who took that acoustic folk-tinged demo and imbued it with a progressively heavier treatment which Paul details here in The Beatles' Off the Record, The Dream Is Over, Volume 2 by Keith Badman. He says, It's got a bit of a tougher guitar riff on it. There's a bit more of my heavy guitar on this album. When Linda and I first met, she'd say, I didn't know you played heavy guitar like that. I love that. But I've always done quite a bit of that for myself. So when it came to this album, Linda said, Really play guitar. Don't just get someone else to play it. It's a little naive, my guitar style. It's not amazingly technical. It's a bit like Neil Young. In fact, I still haven't done the guitar as much as she would have wanted. The final song Macca and Lynn worked on during their initial session was Little Willow, and they began it on the 21st of November 1995, the day that Beatles Anthology 1, along with Free as a Bird, was released. Written 10 months to the prior studio recording, Little Willow is an achingly touching ballad written by Paul upon hearing the death of a close friend whom the McCartneys visited in hospital and continued to keep in close contact with until she died. Being on holiday at the time and therefore out of reach, Paul wasn't given the news for some days, but instantly created Little Willow, not only as his own personal response to the sadness, but as a tribute for his late friend's children. Paul himself repeats a similar state of affairs in this quote from Club Sandwich. A good friend of mine died, someone we all loved, so I wrote a song that conveyed my mood. It's heartfelt. Instead of writing her kids a letter, I wrote a song. It was a very sad day for us all, and Jeff Lee and I gave it our all in the studio. Now, clearly Paul didn't want to name names during this period, as it may have been a little too gauche or tasteless, but that person who died was indeed Maureen Starkey. She was Ringo's wife from 65 to 75, and her relationship dated all the way back to the cavern days. Maureen, or Mo, was the person that Paul thanks at the end of Get Back. You know, thanks, Mo. And she even appeared on the continuing story of Bungalow Bill, singing vocals alongside Yoko and Patty. Now, whilst Paul had initially pitched a basic two-week recording schedule for Jeff Lynne and himself to stick to, it's clear that they in fact did not get bored of each other and that they would actually be both back in the studio by mid-February 1996. Apparently, all it took for Paul to convince Jeff to do it was simply saying, Fancy do some more. On the 19th of February 1996, they began work on the first song of this second stint session and rather fittingly, it was a nice little souvenir to remember their time together. It was called 
you guessed it, Souvenir. Souvenir was written by Paul during a particularly relaxing afternoon on holiday in Jamaica at the beginning of January 1995, as he details here. As I've said, I write quite a bit on holiday, when the pressure's off, and one afternoon in Jamaica, I sat down and started writing a song that turned out to be Souvenir. It was a real lazy holiday, very laid back, and so there was no tension at all in the writing of this song. The phone went in the middle of my making of the demo, and then a tropical downpour happened, but I kept on recording, and I loved the demo for that atmosphere. A studio recording of Souvenir did not occur for another year, but Paul was nonetheless anxious to replicate that same atmosphere from the original Jamaican demo, and to avoid, as Paul says, introducing an uptight feeling to something relaxing. The final touch, the scratchy 78 RPM sound, reminiscent of Honey Pie, was added after Paul observed that his co-engineer John Jacobs had carried with him a key fob with a built-in sound sampler. The vocal effect was added to the end of the song, using this as the medium. The next track that they set their sights on was not planned at all, and was part of a spontaneous series of jam tracks that make up the album. It wound up being the title track, and was called Flaming Pie which was put to tape on the 27th of February, 1996. On one of those mornings in Feb 96, whilst out horse riding, Paul was musing about song lyrics, and it caused him to recall the phrase, Flaming Pie. With what he now admits to being a mischievous gleam in his eye, he quickly wrote the entire set of verses and chorus, which perfectly fitted with some funky riffs that he and Jeff Lynne had evolved days earlier, whilst waiting to overdub guitars on Souvenir. With the lyric and music fashioned, Flaming Pie was recorded quickly. For, entirely appropriately, Paul suggested that the song be taped with the speed that the Beatles had often worked, cutting three songs in a day. Setting themselves to a four-hour deadline, the track came together with relative ease, Paul singing live into his own piano accompaniment, something rarely done in the days of expansive multi-tracking, and Jeff Lynne on the guitar before they added drums and bass and more guitars and harmony vocals. Paul details these sessions here in Club Sandwich 82. I was working with Jeff Lynne on Souvenir when we decided we wanted to add some raw, heavyish guitars. We had the amps belting in the studio, playing guitars in the control room with long leads, and whilst the engineers were getting the sound out, we started vamping and found a few chords and some funky riffs. I started shouting out a little bit of a melody, and so I asked the engineer to stick it on a DAT tape. We just jammed but then I suggested we return to the song. The words came to me a few days later whilst I was out horse with Linda, going through some birch woods. I was thinking and dreaming about the lyrics, looking for a rhyme for sky, going through the alphabet, when I got to pie. The words flaming pie fitted, and I got quite excited about it. Making love underneath the moon, making love underneath the bed, it was great fun to write. After the February sessions, Jeff Lynne came back to Hog Hill Mill in May of 96 to continue the work on Flaming Pie, joined this time by Ringo Starr at the behest of Jeff Lynne. They continued to work on previously recorded tunes and even recorded three new tracks with the help of Starr. One of these tracks would not appear on the final album, despite being one of my low-key favourites of the entire sessions, and that song was called Looking For You, and it went on to be the B-side for the number one variation of Young Boy. Let's just take a little break and listen to that. I thought I saw your shadow In a 
first track that they worked on was the song that Paul had recorded all the way back at the start of this section with Phil Ramone. No, sadly, he didn't re-record Atlantic Ocean, and instead they returned to Beautiful Night on the 13th of May, 1996. Now, as we know, the original version of Beautiful Night isn't exactly the best song ever, but with some minor lyric changes, Paul was prepared to have another crack at it. With Maka at the piano and Ringo on drums, the song came together very comfortably. Wanting to play some guitar at the end, Paul introduced the now classic element to his composition, the up-tempo finale coda thingy-ma-bob. And the microphone even caught some characteristic ab-libbing by Paul and Ringo as they prepared to leave the studio. Paul clearly was very fond of their work together, as he details here. I wrote Beautiful Night quite a few years ago, and I've always liked it, and people who have heard an early recording of it that I made in New York with some of Billy Joel's players have said that they liked it too, but I always felt like we hadn't quite pulled it off, you know? We had a good evening and a great time, but I just didn't feel like it was finished with this one. Also, I was still changing a few of the lyrics, so I did it with Ringo instead. I've always been saying to him for years that we should do more work together. He's great. I just sat at the piano and Ringo sat at the drums. It was so comfortable and lovely to work with him again. Jeff Lynne and I produced it. Ringo was very happy with it, and we tagged on the fast bit at the end, which wasn't in the original recording. Ringo came here to the studio to do Free as a Bird and Real Love and brought his kit with him. It sounds great when it's recorded, the snare, the bass. He then left his kit here in storage, so I phoned up and ordered an exact same copy, all the same pieces, and set up my new kit in the exact same way. In fact, Ringo used my model of his kit for Beautiful Night. The third song from these sessions, recorded on the 14th of May 96, was called Really Love You. The day after Ringo Starr had joined Paul to record Beautiful Night, the pair returned to the studios, where the instruments remained set up as before, and, boys being boys, they set off with a good old-fashioned jam session, with Paul plucking at his Hofner violin bass, Ringo beating the drums, and Jefflin playing guitar. Three separate pieces evolved inside this half an hour, one being Looking For You, which was issued as the B-side to the first UK single of Young Boy, and the first US single of The World Tonight. The other was Looking For You, and the final one has not been released. Though this track best charted the desired R&B groove that they were looking for, with Paul adding another live vocal. Forced to invent the lyric on the spot, he duly grabbed the words out of left field. There's one verse that doesn't make any sense, Paul admits, which goes, I need your heart hopping on a plate. I remember thinking, what did I just say? But I just had to keep going. Even after all the time they had worked together, this is actually the first track ever that is credited to McCartney Starkey. The jam was completed with some guitar overdubs and mixed after Ringo had returned home. Though Paul still played it for him over the telephone, with Ringo's response being, It's relentless. Again, Paul details these sessions in Club Sandwich 82. Ringo was in my studio to record Beautiful Night, and we were getting a great sound from the instruments. The next session, we did three jams in half an hour, including this one, and I got on the Hofner bass, Ringo drumming, Jeff Lee was on guitar, and the three of us got an R&B thing going. I had to fulfil the actor's worst dream of being on stage and not knowing what plays in. My version of this is when I have to sing words to a song that's being made up on the spot. This is why there's that one verse that doesn't make any sense, which is well surreal, but that's okay. 
onto some overdubs now, and Some Days was supposedly meant to be completed by this point, but Paul felt like it might be enhanced by additional arrangement. At this time, he was occasionally meeting with George Martin at Abbey Road for the anthology, you know, sifting through unissued archived Beatles recordings, and Paul asked George if he would listen to Some Days and to consider scoring it with an orchestra. Upon listening to this song, Martin declared, I see you haven't lost your touch, which you know would have made the schoolboy McCartney just so happy and gleeful. Anyway, a 14th ensemble piece was assembled and they recorded their luscious overdubs on the 10th of June, 1996. When speaking of the song, Martin said, When I heard Some Days, it immediately reminded me of Vintage Paul. It's quite difficult to keep writing hits, even when you know the greatest hit maker of them all. It was nice to see that Paul was getting back to his roots, because I think Some Days is a classic song. Then, in September of 96, Jeff Lynne had a last hurrah and came back to Hog Hill Mill for the fourth and final time for another couple of weeks. Though, oddly enough, they only worked on a single song during these sessions, and maybe the rest of the time was spent on, you know, final mixing, tuning up, putting the track listing together, that kind of thing. But yeah, that final song was Heaven on a Sunday. Paul was sailing his boat in America in August 1996 when Heaven on a Sunday materialised enjoying the notion of the celestial city being busy in the week but peaceful on a Sunday, he developed the tune from there, its relaxed ambience reflecting his holiday mood effortlessly. The song was recorded on the McCartney's return to England, and the middle section was endowed with a bluesy feel on the spur of the moment. The guitar solos are shared by Paul and his 19-year-old son James, making it his first disc appearance with the instrument. James McCartney's talent on the guitar is the result of some 10 years practice and home development whilst listening to the likes of Leonard Skinner rather than any sort of formal lessons. When his father suggested these, James's response was, well, you didn't have any dad, which totally echoed, you know, Jim McCartney's own lack of professional music training. You know, like father, like son, like grandson, indeed. Again, when talking about this song, Paul said, this is the most recent of all the songs on Flaming Pie, written shortly before I finish the album. I'd just like to sail when I'm on holiday, just me, the wind and a little boat, a sunfish. I was having a very relaxing time, and this is when I came up with the song. The opening line led me through, I just like the idea of heaven being busy in the week and peaceful on a Sunday. And I like mentioning Devon, though there are a few places called Devon in America, plus the original here in England. James is getting really good on guitar. And though we've not played together, we are sympathetic because we've lived together for almost 20 years. He's 19 now. It didn't take long, and he wasn't too nervous. I played some, he answered it. I played some more, he answered some more. And he came up with some really good phrases. It was very satisfying. People have always asked me, are any of your kids musical? And yes, they are. James got a guitar when he was about 9 or 10. He loves it, and he's good enough to be on this album on Merit Alone. And finally, folks, the last of the sessions for Flaming Pie were the orchestral overdubs for Beautiful Night. The original recording had remained the same for nine months before Paul decided to have it enhanced by a George Martin arrangement, and it was recorded in Studio One at Abbey Road on the 14th of February 1997. When speaking of the song, Martin said, and there we are, folks. That is the entire recording sessions for Flaming Pie. It is in the can, as it were. 
And now it's time to move on to another section of the show that I always enjoy very much, which is a quick discussion of the album cover and packaging for Flaming Pie. As you know, album artwork is really important, and Paul has some of the most iconic covers ever made. So how does Flaming Pie live up to that? Well, you know what? I wouldn't say it's one of the very best McCartney album covers, but it's certainly one of my favourites. And, you know, it does make me laugh that I might have to explain what the album cover is for some of you who might not know. But yeah, the cover is a white border with a green-tinged, almost like sepia, retro-style photo of our Paul's face on a beige background. The photo itself is of Paul holding his guitar during the, the sessions from these albums. And, of course, as per the title, there's also a little Flaming Pie doodle on the bottom right. The sleeve design for Flaming Pie was credited to The Team, and all photography was by Linda. The vinyl inner sleeve and CD booklet contained the album's lyrics, plus notes by Beatles historian Mark Lewison and Macca's publicist Jeff Baker, detailing you know, the sessions of the musicians, yada yada yada, as you just heard. When the 2020 release came out, Paul's own website asked him about the specific look of that photo, and this exchange was had. Creatively, your album artwork has always been really interesting too. The cover of Flaming Pie features a very cool Polaroid transfer effect. Do you remember where this idea came from? Linda always loved different methods of photography. She was so fascinated when she read about the early days of photography of people like Henry Fox Talbot, who were really early pioneers. She used to do things called sun prints, which was an early way of printing. You just put a solution of paper and exposed it to the sunlight. One of the other things she discovered was this Polaroid transfer. She worked with a girl called Zoe Norfolk, who was a friend of ours. Zoe was into these techniques too. She and Zoe did a little series of Polaroid transfers, and we liked them. So, the Flaming Pie cover came through Linda's love of these various printing methods. There is an argument to be made that the full photo of Paul with the guitar is a whole lot cooler, especially in the way that he's like displaying it. But, you know, that's another issue entirely. But, you know, what do I think of what we do have, the, you know, the end result? Well, you know, it's kind of a, a perfect transitional cover, I guess. You know, the blurred, grainy image of that blown-up photo does hide Paul's age and make him a whole lot younger than he is, a bit of a young boy. But it also has a suitably nostalgic and classic feeling, seeing that, you know, this is the post-anthology project. You know, there's just something so simple about it. It does evoke that back-to-basic, simple, earnest feel that you get from the music within. The colour palette is very neutral, very calming, and it gives you that coming-home feeling, you know, especially after Paul's not released an album in four years. It's very heartwarming and very cool. I, I really do like it, especially since the fact that this is the last main studio front cover where we get to see Paul's face. Because, you know, from this point onwards, we just get the Ram era photo on pure McCartney and a cheeky shot of old man Paul on the rear cover of certain special editions of McCartney 3. You know, I can't help but be a little bit more lean towards it in that sense. Now, is it necessarily going to inflame the curiosities of the young 90s youth of the day who haven't already seen this album cover on posters and advertisements and make them pick it up off the shelf to have a look at it? Probably not. And since this is still in the era where Paul would have to rely on certain random people you know, just kind of picking up the album and buying it, it could be a little more dynamic. But hey, in 2020, when we're looking back at this album as, you know, now being something nostalgic, it's near perfect. 
I also just want to talk about the vinyl release that we had for the 2020 archive collection because it's just one of the nicest McCartney vinyls I own. The card and the texture of it, like whatever card and paper they use is just so wonderful to hold. It, it almost feels like woven or something like that. It's got a very tactile joy to it. I really do enjoy just picking it up and moving it about. It's a very good product indeed and it deserves all the acclaim it got, especially with the larger box sets as well. Right, after all of that preamble, Flaming Pie was released in the UK on the 5th of May 1997 and in the US on the 27th of May. And now we're going to talk about everything Paul and his team did to promote it, which, despite the supposedly relaxed, laissez-faire attitude towards recording and plugging the album, was a lot. Now, something that we benefit from getting closer to the modern era is the ease of access to McCartney's interviews and promotional material. And whilst there are a few gaps in the story here, this promotion section is, again, certainly something that I would like to add to older episodes when I go back and remake them. Anyway, let's begin. Starting things off, we have the official announcement of the existence of the album, which was the press launch for the benefit of international journalists, which was held on Tuesday the 15th of April, and there was a following separate event for UK journalists that took place sometime towards the end of April. From this point onwards, folks, McCartney is in full press mode. Starting things off, Paul gave an interview to Sky News, who broadcast it on May 1st, 97, under the new title, Newsmaker Interview. Paul was interviewed by journalist Helen Morton, and snippets were shown over the next week. Sadly, there is no footage available. Then we have the In the World Tonight documentary that was first broadcast in the USA on the 16th of May 97 on VH1 as part of their special themed McCartney week to time with the album's release. It was then broadcast in the UK two days later on the 18th of May 1997 on ITV. And of course, this is the greatest documentary about any McCartney album ever. I rank it higher than the Flaming Pie one, than the Press to Play one, than the Off the Ground one. And... Yeah, if you haven't seen it, folks, go and watch it on YouTube right now. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, as I do talk about it a lot with my guest, Duncan Driver, next week. Then, on the 5th of May 1997, a two-hour radio show named The Flaming Pie Radio Special was released. The radio show was similar in concept to the Ubu Juba one that we discussed last episode, as it you know mixed songs and interviews together, and was all produced by the same person who produced those, Eddie Puma or Puma. The show contained interviews with McCartney, Jeff Lynne, Steve Miller, Ringo Starr, and George Martin. When speaking of this show, producer Eddie Puma said the following: "This radio show is unique. No other rock star has ever taken his audience around his studio like this before." The program gives the listener an inside ear on the magic of making this album. Besides talking about his inspiration for the new songs, he lets the listener in on many musical secrets, and there are a number of special and hilarious moments as Paul impromptuly demonstrates his instrument collection, like the original synthesizer that the Beatles used on Strawberry Fields. Then we have the VH1 Town Hall meeting, Paul was interviewed for the VH1 channel at Bishopsgate Town Hall, and it was broadcast on May 17th, 1997. Paul supposedly chose the venue as he was visiting a choir for quote-unquote something else he was doing, which probably means it was for Standing Stone, but it's also a nice little nod to the Beatles, with it being in the lyrics for being for the benefit of Mr. Kite, you know, at Bishopsgate, boom, 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 boom. 
a hundred people were invited to sit in and ask questions. And yeah, this is an example of us starting off as we, we mean to go along, really, because, you know, all of this, despite being put in place to advertise Flaming Pie, the majority of it is centred around the Beatles, as are most of the audience questions. Now, the most notorious part of this interview was Paul's impromptu, spontaneous writing of a little sing-along for him and the audience. I've mentioned in episodes passing about Paul's tendency to do this exact same kind of shtick whenever he has his guitar and is anywhere near Lipper, you know, doing a kind of impromptu song for the Lipper graduates that year. I mean, all I, all I can say about this one is it's nowhere near as cringy as that kind of stuff. But you know what? Let's just listen to it. You can you can judge for yourselves. All right. Okay. So here you go. Here's where we drive the sound men mad. Um, you've got to sing a bit, okay, audience? Yeah. I was sitting in my dressing room just before, and I thought... Well, I'd be mad if I could come up with some little song about Bishopsgate, all right? And now it would be really mad if I can remember it. Yeah. Uh, but what your bit is, uh, sound like. All you've got to do is... You've got to do... Come on back, come on back. Okay. Come on back, come on back. That's it. So remember, that's your bit, okay. I'll try and remember the song now. Yeah, okay. Oh, now, baby, now the bishop's gate ain't what it used to be. He came over from America and they put it on the TV. Well, now they say that they're coming back and I can hardly wait. Yes, that certainly was something, wasn't it? Anyway, apart from being broadcast on VH1, excerpts have shown in the uh, DVD edition of the documentary Paul McCartney in the World Tonight. The footage was not used in the TV version, obviously, because it didn't exist yet. Next up, and we have the e-online webcast. And whilst Paul answering questions online is totally the norm now, being so normal that it's actually part of his own website, you know, the You Gave Me The Answer monthly newsletter, but as far as 1997 goes, this was pretty darn crazy, as detailed here by Senior Vice President of New Media at Capitol Records, Liz Heller. Without having a web-based event of this magnitude to compare it to, Based on our numbers and response, we are thrilled to have presented not only what we're calling one of the best internet events ever, but a webcast that we believe truly breaks ground for how the internet can be used as a true multimedia tool. So yeah, directly after the live broadcast of VH1's uh, you know, Paul McCartney's town hall meeting, Paul took to his seat behind a computer and answered 29 questions during the 30-minute event. According to Heller, the McCartney web event generated a massive response. Sir Paul interacted directly with his fans for the first time and attempted to answer as many of the three million questions possible, uh, which represented over 60 countries in the world. Nearly one million pages were viewed 
and in excess of 50,000 fans were participating directly in the interactive portion of the webcast. Almost 5,500 people were able to visit the chat section of the webcast, with 1,500 users directly being able to log on with McCartney. Also, according to Wikipedia, the event entered the Guinness Book of Records for the most people in an online chat room at once, again, nearly two decades ago. Following on, on the 27th of May, Paul did an interview with USA Today with Edna Gunderson, who is one of the critics we'll be quoting later, actually. She's also clearly into the same puns as me, as the interview was titled A Nostalgic Slice of Pie. It is a lovely little interview, but nothing really that weighty, nothing to really you know, bother posting here. Though, again, I might actually quote it later in this segment. Pressing forth to the 1st of June 97, and we have an interview with Record Collector magazine. Again, a very standard interview, but there was one little question that did stand out to me. So, was it a conscious decision to drop the band you used on Off the Ground? It wasn't really planned that way. Normally you'll have contracts, retainers and everything, but I knew I wasn't going to tour for a couple of years, because we'd been around the world twice and it'd been a lot of fun, but there's a limit to how many times you can enjoy it. When you're sitting in the St. Louis Holiday Inn, ordering up scrambled eggs again, you start remembering you've got a nice home. I said to the band, let's just leave it. If we ever want to pick it up again, we won't be on retainers or anything. If we like each other as musicians, we'll do it again sometime. It's been left that loose. But when it came time to record, having done the last album off the ground with them, I decided I want more freedom this time. These days, I'm very much in a try-not-to-remember-how-you-did-it-without-pressure mood, which is not always that easy to do. Moving on to the 15th of June, Paul did an interview with BBC Radio 1. Now, whilst this is a really enjoyable interview, it's very much in the camp of interviews where he basically offers nothing new and the interviewer asks nothing new. You know, so that basically means, you know, they cover him getting knighted, the anthology, Steve Miller, and of course a healthy dollop of flaming pie. They also played a bunch of songs off the album as well, which was very nice to hear. Then, on the 23rd of June, we get another interview. This time it was recorded for the Italian uh, network RAI3, who broadcast this lengthy interview as a standalone TV special they called Incontro a Soho Square, meaning Meeting in Soho Square. It should be noted that this promotional movie is very indicative of the Flaming Pie era, as there, there's a clip in the um, In the World Tonight documentary where Paul talks about not wanting to go around the world to promote this album, and so he's making the foreign press come to him. The interviewer, naturally, is Italian and cannot speak English, needing a translator, which is something that Paul gets a lot of banter and humour out of. The whole thing is relatively fun and light-hearted and lightweight, but the interviewer didn't half make all of his questions, like, about Italy, which I thought was quite strange. Moving ever onward, and on the 27th of June, 97, Paul appeared on a true staple of UK 90s television, that being TFI Friday, a.k.a. Thank Fuck It's Friday, on Channel 4, hosted by then-popular radio DJ and car fanatic Chris Evans. TFI Friday was a manic music and pop culture-based chat show with loads of various games and skits, but it was mostly, you know, a young person's version of Top of the Pops, I guess is the best way to put it. It had some older artists like Paul on Yes, but it was mostly full of young, current artists doing two or three songs each with a nice interview. This market, though, was key for Paul, and I know he would have gained fans and street cred even if the interview had been a disaster. 
However, that is not what happened at all. And actually, Paul was on fire for this interview, and it wasn't hard to tell how well it was going down. The crowd and crew behind the camera are whooping and hollering the entire time, and a splendid time is being had by all. The whole thing is delightfully chaotic from the moment the host brings out a literal flaming pie at the start of the interview to the end where he's reading out questions posited by other celebrities, including Ringo himself, who asks Paul who his favourite Beatle is. One rather interesting little element is where Chris Evans accuses Paul of fibbing in the album liner notes for the album. Yeah, OK. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a couple of these now. Uh, first of all, is it true that you tell a fib in this booklet about one of the songs? Uh, yeah, but yeah. you better remind me a bit about okay. what we're doing here. Well, it's a song called Some Days, right? And you said of Some Days, I'd driven Linda to a photo session for one of her cookery assignments. Right. Fair enough. Nice, true. Nice bloke. Right. So far, we're okay. true. OK. Knowing she'd be out about two hours, I set myself a deadline to write a song in that time so that when she'd finished and she, she said to me, yeah, what did you do? I said, well, I wrote, I wrote a song because that's what I do. Right. Is right. that true? That is true. It's not. <laughs> What do you know that I don't? I, well, I heard... I heard... I heard that it was Jeff... Yes. ..who nipped out, your publicist... Yes. yes. And, you, ..and you've substituted Jeff's name for Linda's. No, no, no. <laughs> well, that's what he said. Completely true, no, we do. He's a liar. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm going to agree with you, not him. Another of my favourite parts of this episode is in the intro titles where they put, you know, all the cast names. And rather hilariously, they put, and introducing Paul McCartney. Very witty. Though, I do imagine some of the younger crowd watching this may literally have been introduced to him through this show. But yeah, overall, Paul nailed this one. And this is easily one of my favourite McCartney interviews to date. It's a shining example of his charm, wit and humour. Of course, Paul also performed a couple of songs for the show. And because he had no band, it was just him solo with some sort of backing track or a pre-recorded element recorded by him. These two songs were Flaming Pie and Young Boy, and we're going to hear one of them right now. Next up, and Paul gave an interview with NBC's Today programme, which was broadcast in three parts over three days, from July 7th to July 9th. Again, sadly, can't find any footage of this. Then, on the 10th of July, Paul sat down with journalist Matt Lauer for an interview with MSNBC. Now, I feel like I've watched this interview, or clips of this interview, but the reason for that is maybe because this is the most lengthy and expansive of all the kind of mediocre surface level interviews from this period like again it isn't that insightful or contain anything shocking or new material or anything like that but 
What it is, is the most comprehensive collection of all of the generic anthology, flaming pie, being knighted, standing stone stories from this period. So, if for some reason you can only read one light-hearted, lightweight interview from this period, I would suggest you read this one. Simple as. Next up, and we have a clip that I've known about basically for the entire time I've been a Paul McCartney fan, which is his interview with Conan O'Brien, which was broadcast on the 10th of July. Yes, folks, I'm not afraid to say that whilst David Letterman is probably still the best US talk show host, I've still got to say that Conan will always be my favourite. You know, I just love his style and his humour and his very strange personality. I love all of his staff that work with him on his show and all of his YouTube content, that kind of thing. He really is just the best of all the modern hosts. And I love the movie that he did as well, where he wasn't allowed to perform on TV for like 12 months or something, so he just toured instead. Absolutely love him. He's the GOAT. And yeah, in this little skit, Conan basically does his thing and does a kooky, quick-witted, back-and-forth... well most importantly actually gushing interview with our Paul they are you know giants of their own fields and the whole thing is just a joy from start to finish and you know what I don't want to go into too much detail with this one and so I'm just going to simply play a clip of their chat instead now uh ladies and gentlemen Paul McCartney has a uh, brand new CD out it's called Flaming Pie it's a, uh, it's a great CD. There's some amazing songs. And uh, I had the rare opportunity last week to go to London and uh, talk to the man himself. And uh, he said we could talk about the CD and anything else that came up. Ladies and gentlemen, here's my little chat with Paul McCartney. This album alone, I mean, you're famous for it, but you're, you're playing bass, you're playing guitar, you're playing drums, you're playing harmonium. Mm. Is there an instrument that you've tried you just couldn't tackle? Uh, yeah, there? there are many of them, yeah. Seriously, it's like it's the blowing instruments I'm no good at. You can't do the bl- blowing? There's the blowing the, thing? That's the technical term for them. That is what they're technically known <laughs> in the orchestral world, the symphonic world, as I am entering into. Uh-huh. I did actually start off on trumpet. My dad gave me a trumpet mm-hmm. when I was about 14. And I eventually traded it in for a guitar. Yeah. You just Asking couldn't... him first, saying, do you mind? And he said, I don't mind. No, I couldn't sing with it in my mouth. I heard your, yeah, your Let It Be on tuba just never sold as well. <laughs> it just was not a big seller. I was noticing that you've, you wrote a lot of these songs on holiday. When you go on vacation, you write songs. For your family, do they ever get annoyed that they say, Dad, let's go water ski? And you think, water ski, water ski, that rhymes water with... Water ski, water ski. <laughs> and you start writing a song about water skiing, which ends the album and is very good, by the way. My kids are very supportive, you know. They, mm-hmm. they know, that ever since they've been little, <laughs> there's been this guy in the corner of the room going, water ski, water ski. <laughs> and so they, uh-huh. they're used to me now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't mind. Right. They, they normally don't mind. Uh, and, and your son... Sometimes they want to watch something on TV. Oh. At which point I will be told to stop. That's a little strange. There, they, you're, Paul McCartney sits down it's my TV. and is writing a song. It's your TV. I'm paying for this by songwriting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cut any ice or water or whatever. You they don't care. They say, Paul McCartney, stop playing the guitar. We're trying to watch. No, they say, Dad. Dad. Stop it. You should make them call you by your full name. I've said, look, I am Sir Paul McCartney on your knees. So I beseech you in the name of the Royal Liege, this television might be 
doesn't they don't go for it right now you could be writing a great song except I you am. Have, except you have to oh right now I am right now does it involve me in any way no just a second <laughs> okay there it is finished really yeah. Mike come on just have half the credit because no. I was here no no you didn't even know I was writing it <laughs> I could see in your eyes that a song was being written so I think I should get some credit just 20% hey. I cannot reveal it just yet <laughs> <laughs> Give me two more minutes and it'll be finished. Okay, my people are going to sue you. Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, Mike. Yeah. Used to. Um, you don't have to do that with people. Yeah, do you know that song? There's a lot of young you ever people. Heard of that? There's, there's young people these days who haven't heard it. Yeah, but really, you've had people, you're saying to people, it's called Let It Be. Sorry. No. <laughs> no, it goes like this. You're wasting your time. Please move along. <laughs> I always do it anyway. You know, I don't, I yeah. don't, I don't speak yeah. that. But, um, Michelle, I used to sit around at parties. Uh, enigmatically, in a sort of black roll neck sweater, <laughs> going, Was you, was you, was you, want you, was you, and hoping they would think I was a French person <laughs> and would want me to go to bed with them. Uh -huh. um, this worked with women? No. <laughs> it never worked. That was never. the problem. Uh -huh. this, this is a smelly French person. <laughs> I don't like the song either. Uh -huh. But many, many years later, and this is the true bit. John did say, you remember that smelly French song that you used to do to pretend that you... <laughs> he said, that wasn't bad. Uh -huh. said, you should write some good words to that. Right. So I did. You seem like such a nice guy. You seem like, uh, you know, you're a responsible guy. Did you ever, as a rock star, feel at all tempted to trash a hotel room? I did once <laughs> knock some scrambled egg off a plate. I had it with this hotel. <laughs> that was quite a wild one in my yeah. own days. So. <laughs> You know, coming up here through your offices, we saw these different Buddy Holly pictures and everything. And of course, you're a, you're a huge fan. I'm a huge Buddy Holly fan. And yeah. that's kind of what, when I first could play rudimentary guitar, it's only three chords. That was one of the great things about you Buddy. You can play Peggy Sue yeah, in an hour. Them all. Yeah. Like most of them. Maybe I'm amazed. Uh, not maybe I'm amazed. <laughs> That's mine. No, you just admitted that Buddy wrote that, <laughs> and you took it. Take him away, baby, boys. Baby, baby! <laughs> uh-huh. You, you met Elvis, was it just once? Yeah, we met him um, when he was in Hollywood. Yeah. And the trouble with the anthology was we all had different memories of it, because it is so long ago. And, you know, time does things to those old memories. Mm -hmm. So Ringo remembered him never standing during the whole evening. That right. was Ringo's key memory. Mine was of him meeting us at the door. So that was the anthology. Right. George Detail. said you were at an amusement park. You were all on a merry-go-round. You can't get a straight story here. It was a bit here. like that, yeah. But it was wonderful um, to meet him because he was such a hero to us. And I mean, actually meeting. I mean, I see people do it with me or would do it with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. You know, wow, you know, I grew up on your music. Well, we grew up on Elvis's music. So he was great. And he was at a great point in his life, I think, too. He was... Um, he was still all there. Mm -hmm. The Las Vegas drug doctor had not come to see him. Right. Oh, now that is, you know, allegedly, of course. I do not know that this happened. I understand there is an allegation <laughs> that this kind of thing happened later in Elvis's life. I'm not stupid. No, this. no, so, Elvis was never involved with drugs. Probably not. The whole the rumor that he ever got overweight, I find upsetting. That was probably There's no proof. No, just exactly. I need a, just a little advice. I don't know if you're aware, because you live mostly uh, here in England. My show is wildly popular in the United States, one of the most popular shows in the history of television. And I'm experiencing something right now that's a Conan mania, for lack of a better term. People would just, occasionally when I leave a hotel room or 
when I get out of my apartment in the morning, someone might recognize. Sorry. No, nothing. Am I boring you? No, 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 no. really. Sorry, no. Okay, you look Go like ahead. you're about to nod. I, know, I look like I was yawning there for a second. I've no. been recognized on occasion on the street. Yeah. I've had one or two people recognize me, and occasionally people have even approached me to say, "Hi, your show isn't that bad." So I know what you went through. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you, is it going to calm down at some point? I guess that's my question. I'm not sure, though. I mean, it, it might. Mm-hmm. It might. And if it does, don't be disappointed. It may, however, be building. You think? Well, I, if this song works out, I'm working on as the, we speak. The Conan song. There could, there could be something in this. This could uh, increase your uh, fan level to five or six. Could I just have one of these before I go? You've got all these... Well, uh, platinum and gold albums, and I thought if I could just leave with one, yeah. it would be proof that I was here. It'd be okay, you know, the alarms will go off as you go out the door. It's like the gap here. Big. You leave with something and an alarm goes off. It's exactly like the gap. <laughs> That's where I got them. You got these at the I gap? I got these at the gap. You can get everything there. <laughs> Uh, I think that's, you know, that's it. Well, I'm finished with you, Conan. You're finished? I think that's it, though. Now, you have a, people that are going to escort me out here and kind of toss me out onto the street. They've been briefed already. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so if, uh, I guess if, I'll never be seeing you again, then. If, nobody may be seeing you again. <laughs> okay. This may be the end of your series and career. Really? Yeah. But um, I have written the song now. Conrad's in London. He's a great chap. He's a terrific person, but he's never coming back. I love that song. It's not bad. I don't like the end where I get don't killed. come back. Thanks very much for uh, spending some time with us, and uh, a thrill to meet you. And, uh, Good fun to be on your show. Thank you. Good to see you. Okay. And it's really me. Which is really good. Serious. I'm getting <laughs> You should uh, check it out, and we uh, we also want to say our uh, thanks to uh, Sir Paul McCartney uh, for meeting with us. Something he did not have to do, obviously. And uh, as you saw there, he was an incredibly nice and an extremely funny guy. And it was a real pleasure talking to him. Paul McCartney, the album is Flaming Pie. We'll be right back with Martin Short. We'll see you in a Moving into October the 16th, to be precise, and Paul did a signing event at the HMV his master's voice, on Oxford Street in London. This was a joint venture for both Flaming Pie and Standing Stone, and he sat signing autographs for about 70 minutes. And whilst I'm sure that the vast majority of fans in attendance still never actually got anything signed, this is still a far cry away from modern Paul, who is rarely seen up close by fans outside of live music or book promotions. And now that Paul has stopped signing stuff altogether for fans, I doubt we'll ever see like anything like this again. When asked about the event, Paul said the following, HMV was the first place that Brian Epstein dropped off all of our records, and it all happened from there. So when they asked me to do it, I thought, yeah, why not? I know a lot of the kids, too. I see them from event to event, but I never normally get a chance to speak to them. Then, on November 3rd, Paul spoke with veteran journalist Sir David Frost, and they had a very detailed conversation. Though, sadly, I actually can't find any footage of this, and all that exists are Paul's answers from the interview on the venerable paulmccartneyproject.com. And despite it being Sir David Frost, it seems like a lot of it was just basic interview stuff for McCartney again. Uh, It wasn't like up there with the Charlie Rose interviews for um, Blackbird Singing, for example. 
But I did have one answer that I thought was quite interesting, and this is Paul talking about death. He said, when we were kids, we always used to say, whoever dies first, get a message through. Stu Sutcliffe was the first to die, and I never got a message. I don't think any of us did. Then when John died, I thought, maybe I'll get a message now, because I knew the deal, and I haven't heard a message from John. Now, I don't know if you can get messages back. Maybe you're living, but there's no postal service. And finally, everyone, something that I never expected to see our Paulie do. On the 20th of November, 1997, Macca appeared as a guest on The Oprah Winfrey Show, like the biggest show in the US. And it was a very long interview. It was probably about 40 minutes to an hour long. And Oprah does this very big grandstandy intro where she says how everything's come full circle because she used to have Paul on her wall as a little girl back in the day and now she gets to speak to him and whilst this is a massive platform for Paul to advertise the album yeah it's really uh really kind of bog standard really there's nothing that special about it at all Oprah asks the most inane boring obvious questions ever and yeah there just isn't that much to write home about you know she's clearly not a deep cut fan she mostly probably just likes the Beatles greatest hits you know she probably loved the Beatles one but you know there was never going to be any questions outside of the obvious stuff that the Joe and Jane every man every woman kind of people who watch Oprah Winfrey would be expecting her to ask um the only interesting parts here are again Paul performs on his own doing that kind of pre-recorded thing that he did on TFI and Macca also debuted the video for Beautiful Night here also. Anyway, let's see if all of that promotion was put to good use as we now have a look at the sales reports for the album. Flaming Pie peaked at number two in the UK, his highest entry since 1989's Flowers in the Dirt, though it was held off the top spot by the Spice Girls' debut album Spice. In America... The release was three weeks after the UK's, and as a result, many American fans bought imported copies, which did affect McCartney's first week's sales, unfortunately. And similar to the UK, Flaming Pie peaked at number two, again being held off the top by the Spice Girls. Across the world, Flaming Pie made it into the following chart positions. Japan, number 14. Sweden, number 11. Switzerland and Canada, 10. Australia and the Netherlands, number 9. Germany and Austria, number six. Spain, five. Denmark, four. Norway and Italy, number three. Not bad. And despite no number one spot, it was one of the highest selling albums in Europe across like the whole European charts that year also. On the 28th of April, 97, Young Boy was released as the first single for Flaming Pie. It featured two non-album B-sides, Looking For You and Broomstick, though in the United States, the Capitol Records chose to issue The World Tonight as the album's lead single. But yeah, Young Boy made it to the following chart positions. Uh, it did not chart in the US, sadly. Uh, there's no information on that. Um, in Germany, it made it to number 55, Iceland number 35, Austria number 30, Canada 28, Belgium 11, UK number 19. Though in Spain, it got to number 3. Then we have The World Tonight single, which was released on the 17th of April, 97 peaking at number 64 on the Billboard Hot 100, number 9 on the US, and number 23 on the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks chart. I believe this is the only single from the album that was released in the US, weirdly. Uh, the the B-side of the American release was originally released in the UK. You know, it was Young Boy. In the UK, though, this was the second single from Flaming Pie, 
which was released in July, and peaked at number 23 in the UK's chart. The B-side for this one was Used to be Bad and Really Love You. Also, it reached number 70 in Peru, number 68 in the Netherlands, and number 14 in Canada. And then you've got the Beautiful Night single, which really didn't do a lot at all. Uh, It ended up peaking at number 25 here in the UK singles chart, left after about four weeks, and then randomly jumped back up to number 97 at one point. But that's hardly worth talking about. It did not do anything in the American charts. Also, as a little aside, the Archive Collection re-release of this album in 2020 actually managed to get up to number 14 in the album charts here in the UK, before then dropping out of the charts completely the following week. Like, yeah, these Archive sets do make bank and do sell a lot on their opening week, but they have no staying power, and they've got nothing on the Beatles' 50th anniversary sets, which do actually stick around for a little bit at least. Though, if anyone knows if this re-release charted in the US, please hit me up at paulmccartypod.gmail.com. In terms of awards, Flaming Pie did okay. Um, It received no nominations at the Brit Awards, but it was still at least nominated for uh, Album of the Year at the Grammys, though the uh, award that year was won by Bob Dylan with his album Time Out of Mind. On the 4th of November, though, Paul received the Q Award for Best Songwriter for Flaming Pie, And here's a quote from Beatles Monthly Book number 260 that details a couple of the antics that happened here. (laughs) Paul attended the annual Q Award ceremony at the Park Lane Hotel in London on the 4th of November, where he was presented with the Best Songwriter Award for Flaming Pie. Also attending the proceedings was legendary producer Phil Spector, who received a special Q Award. When some video clips of Spectre's best-known recordings were played on a giant screen, Paul stood up and applauded an excerpt of John's Stand By Me, which Spectre didn't actually produce. But when Spectre took to the stage to make a speech, Paul got up from his seat and walked out, apparently in protest at Spectre's overdubs on Let It Be nearly 30 years ago. Wow. (laughs) Now, before we move on, I do just want to touch on the fact that the largest promotional tool to promote an album was not engaged for this album. There was no Flaming Pie tour. Paul has a couple of things to say on this and explain why he didn't go on it. Uh, When talking to Bob Spitz in the New York Times in May of 1997, he said, Last time I went on the road, it made me think, it's about time to get a life here. You know, you're sitting in the Holiday Inn in St. Louis and you think, I've got a terrific house and the garden will be lovely this time of year. Enough's enough. And in an interview with USA Today with Edna Gunderson, who we mentioned earlier, he continued, I'm just too lazy at the moment. A few years ago, we went around the world twice and that was enough. You find yourself in some strange godforsaken place and you think to yourself, I've got a lovely home. Why don't I ever visit it? I've been telling people promoting this album. The password is no sweat. I don't want anyone sweating about the album. It was conceived with no sweat and recorded with no sweat. It's a little homemade pie. So yeah, folks, it seems like the magic and the enjoyment of world tours has kind of worn off a little on Paul at this point. And we are in this kind of pre-modern McCartney era where he is just touring all the time. Like I couldn't imagine modern Paul saying something like that at all. But yeah, it's just really strange, isn't it? How, how unique is that? Anyway, after two episodes of preamble, and before we go into mine and my guest opinions in the next episode, we must first conclude the proceedings with a look at what everyone else thinks about this album. Of course, the go-to diatribe about Flaming Pie is that it was welcomed warmly with open arms by everyone, and 
you know, maybe bar Chaos and Creation, it's the last album to truly be seen as great by both the media and the fan base at the same time upon release. Now, whilst this is mostly correct with the reviews from 97, uh, we, we're going to start seeing a change with some more of the retrospective reviews. I can remember a few months back when I was talking about how I was worried that this might be an overrated one, like Tug of War. And whilst there is still some potential for it to be somewhat overrated, that would be nowhere near to the level of Tug of War. Then again, I feel a lot of you tend to agree with me more when I say an album is underrated than the other way around. But yeah, anyway, let's see what the regular mooks have to say about Flaming Pie. In 97, the LA Times wrote, Granted, McCartney's post-Beatles oeuvre has seldom approached the impossibly high standard that he's set in his 20s, but on his latest effort, the old bloke sounds more inspired and, well, less goofy than he has in years. Recorded at his home studio, McCartney's new album has a relaxed, relatively off-the-cuff feel and stripped-down arrangements that showcase the knack for yummy hooks that has always been his strong suit. Anthony DeCurtis, writing for Rolling Stone in 97, said... Too often in the past, the word reflection would mean a douse in the nostalgia bath, but on Flaming Pie, McCartney's look back is a genuine search, as though it were uncertain about what he may find there. The confusion becomes him, complicating his typically all-too-settled point of view and, and lending Pie a needed edge. It's assertive without being defensive, aware without being trendy. Chris Ingham in Mojo magazine wrote, However, though... Less spectacularly ambitious than the serious work, there is much to be enjoyed here. The indisputable melodic flair, the uplifting doe-eyed optimism, the daft rockers, all here on Fleming Pie. An album of the McCartney tradition of pretty good, nudging upper middle. If you're hip to him, that's all you'll need. It must be noted, though, that the man singing is a marvel. The grey around the edges, folk balladeering of Calico Skies, the falsetto blues croon of Heaven on a Sunday, the deliriously uninhibited rock shriek on Really Love You, reconfirm that McCartney's vocal range is without equal in pop. Sinatra's pipes virtually cracked to 55. What's this guy on? Carol Clark in Uncut magazine in 97 wrote, Perhaps this is why Flaming Pie is his most relaxed album he's made in years. Macca doesn't have to try and change the world because he's done that once already. He no longer needs to make records at all, and if he's just doing it for fun, then at least he can allow himself to sound that way. At the same time, and despite a return to various roots, there is nothing so inspirationally raucous as I'm Down, She's a Woman, or Helter Skelter. Rather, this is a mature album. The work is someone who, at 54, is content to exist as an accomplished tunesmith with an odd great turn of phrase and an undiminished respect for America's pioneers. For Friends of McCartney, Flaming Pie is an unworried, optimistic, conversational album, as friendly as a cup of tea and a round of Linda's sandwiches in the garden. Neil Strauss, in the New York Times in 97, wrote... It's better than Off the Ground, his lightweight last album, but as a self-professed response to his work unearthing Beatles songs for recent anthology series, this new music is nowhere in that league. As most of his solo work has proved, Mr McCartney is about as heavy as a sheet of typewriter paper, so when he sings lyrics like I go back so far, I'm in front of me, and see the world through a glass and speculate about the cosmic solution, it just sounds inane. Mr. McCartney's great pop instincts, though, are all over this album, in the wrenching melodies, in the savvily treated studio vocals, and all of the subtle call and response of voice and guitar. 
but he seems to be cursed by a homing device that constantly sends him veering to the middle of the road. In Flaming Pie, he tries to fight it at all times, but he does this with nostalgia, and nostalgia is a weapon that only makes us lure to the middle of the road stronger. Edna Gunderson for USA Today wrote, Tasty, if not filling, every slice of McCartney's Flaming Pie leaves you hungry for seconds. His basic ingredients, contagious melodies, smart arrangements, uncomplicated lyrics, elevate McCartney miles above the current glut of gimmick, happy pop rock featherweights masquerading as songwriters. McCartney recoils from risks and experiments, but not out of laziness. He's a peerless melodist, proving on Flaming Pie that remarkable simplicity can be simply remarkable. The enemy wrote... Basking in the success of the anthology Beatle Glut, we come across new Beatle-rific Sir Paul, apparently content to finally admit that his best work is behind him. Indeed, such is the lack of pretension surrounding Flaming Pie, it seems pretty pointless firing any critical napalm in his direction at all, the old spoil sport. Then we come to the internet reviews. Allmusic.com wrote, It recalls the homely charm of McCartney and Ram. McCartney still has the tendency to wallow in trite sentiment, and his more ambitious numbers, like the string-drenched epic Beautiful Night or the silly Beatles-esque psychedelia of Fleming Pie, fall a little flat. But when he works on a small scale, as on the waltzing, the songs we were singing, Calico Skies, Great Day, and Little Willow, he's genuinely affecting. Fleming Pie is one of his most successful latter-day efforts, mainly because McCartney is at his best when he doesn't try so hard and lets his effortless melodic gifts rise to the surface. RateYourMusic.com user TheRealTagashi writes, It suffers a tiny bit from feeling like most of the tracks could be cut down by 30 seconds or even a minute shorter, but that being said, it's undoubtedly the most solid collection of Paul's tunes since the Carter administration. Production by Jeff Lynne offers a certain cleanliness that I think befits Macca's performances, most of which consist of acoustic guitar with the occasional string section. Paul's voice is intimate here, and overall, tonally, the record is drier than previous projects, offering a much more traditional sound. I doubt I have to mention Paul's songwriting in much depth. It is what you'd expect from a record like this. Beautiful melodies and pop hooks, albeit with repetitive bland lyricism. He's just delivered it better than any of his records in the past 15 years. RateYourMusic.com user Schmelsch writes, Some great guitar pop, but Fleming Pie suffers from that 90s malady of being overlong for no other reason than CDs allowed artists to stretch their albums from 40 to 50 plus minutes by including crap that would have been left off in the past and, no doubt, eventually resurfaced on an archive anniversary edition. RateYourMusic.com user JWeber14 wrote, The songs just don't stand out. They are mostly boring soft pop rock songs with some laid-back acoustic guitar and piano. There are some okay songs, but none really stand out, and this is a far cry from Paul's 70s career. Sure, it's impressive that Paul was able to give us a decent enough album when he was pushing 55, but it definitely gets a bit more recognition than it likely deserves. RateYourMusic.com user MDeckoning writes, It has been said about every McCartney album that came out about this one, but this is the album where it was actually true. A stunning return to form and his best since the 70s. Inspired by working on the Beatles anthology documentaries and CDs, McCartney decided to do a stripped-down, simple album in the style of his first two albums, McCartney and Ram. It was a smart move, as McCartney hasn't sounded this relaxed since the days of Wings. 
Also, it turns out to be one of the most consistent set of songs since 75's Venus and Mars. In a way, this album is even more fun than that one. Allmusic.com Heath Bartlett writes, Flaming Pie is full of some of the best McCartney tunes I've heard in some time. A nice balance of the sweeter pop tunes, pop rock, that Paul is known for dominating the musical landscape with here. And it's hard to find a weak track. Jeff Lynne's production doesn't weigh down the music for a change, and that allows Paul's natural talents to have room to flourish. As a result, Flaming Pie for me comes just after Band on the Run and Tug of War in his post-Beatle catalogue. And finally, allmusic.com user Brad Duncan writes, Jeff Lynne really knows how to put the mid-tempo in mid-tempo rocker, but this, this is toothless. Even the rockers are processed and restrained. I just don't feel that this is Jeff's fault though, because he can only work with what Paul's giving him, and this stuff isn't great. You know how to gauge the, the success of a failure album like this? Go to any UCD shop, see how many times this CD pops up in the Paul McCartney section. Every time I've checked my local area, there are multiple copies of this CD, where there are usually only one other copy of his other albums. Most of his good stuff never finds its way into these used CD shops. And yeah, folks, there we are. That is the end of the public reviews for Flaming Pie. And that means we are at the end of part two. Yes, finally, we are at the end of part two of Flaming Pie. Whew, we got there in the end. I told you all that there was a whole lot to cover. Thank you so much for sitting through it. I hope you've learned something and I hope even more that you've had a little bit of fun. Thank you all for tuning in, folks. Obviously, next episode is going to be part three, my chat with Dr. Duncan Driver, where we go deep on this album. It's a long one. I know you're going to enjoy it. It's my first album review without Ken Michaels, so I hope you can all you know, forgive me for that, but Duncan really wanted to talk about this album. And the proof is in the pudding, or the pie, you might say, as it is a killer episode. Right, folks, thank you all for listening to another episode of Poor or Nothing. I'm sure Denny Lane is already playing us out already, so all I'm going to say is stick around for next week's episode. I will see you then. Keep listening to Paul, keep listening to Wings, keep listening to ELO and Steve Miller and all that lot. Peace and love, peace, peace and love, love, peace and love. No more autographs. No more autographs. Ram on. Ram on. Play us out, play, play us out, Denny.
Take a look. 